And this is episode three of the Hall Mills murder story. In episode one and two, we learned about Edward Wheeler Hall and Eleanor Mills and uncovered deeper details of their love affairs and families. As the clock struck 12, the imposing figures of officers could be seen marching towards the door of Francis Hall's secluded mansion. Tensions filled the air as they prepared to place the most powerful woman in town under arrest for the brutal murder of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. The news broke the next morning. Right there, splashed across the front page of the Somerset Messenger, were the words, Francis Hall arrested for the murder of husband Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. The news sent shockwaves throughout the entire community. It was the talk of the town, the subject of hushed whispers and heated debates. The public had assumed, of course, that it was Francis acting out of pure jealousy and rage. But to have their thoughts validated was an entirely different matter. It wasn't just author Reel's testimony that added something new to the case. It all began when Prosecutor Alexander realized he was missing Eleanor's autopsy report. He ordered another one and received something with an added detail. Her throat had also been cut, presumably to keep her from screaming and attracting attention to the scene. But the evidence didn't stop there. A business card found at the scene of the crime had the fingerprint of Francis's brother, William Stephen, and the love letters scattered around their bodies had been recovered and pieced together. Sweetheart, my true heart, Eleanor had written in one. I know there are girls with more shapey bodies, and I'm not caring what they have. I have the greatest part of all blessings, a nobleman's deep, true, eternal love. How impatient am I, and will be. I want to look up in your dear face, for hours, as you touch my body close. The churchman's reply was no less ardent. Darling, wonderful heart, I just want to crush you for two hours. I want to see you Friday night alone by our road, where we can let out unrestrained, that universe of joy and happiness we call ours. In every letter, he signed himself DTL, short for Diener Truer Leibeer, or Thy True Lover in German. Eleanor, who was far less formal, only referred to Edward as Babykins. It inspired a series of reports by journalist Don Markey, His first report, titled A Mystery Revived, appeared ahead of the trial and chronicled the resurrection of the case by a man named Payne. Payne's investigation was a tangled web of marriage annulments, secondhand confessions, alleged hush money, and witness tampering. 
It took nearly a year of sleuthing to piece it all together. Markey's account of Payne's tabloid crusade was rife with skepticism. He didn't believe that the authorities were any closer to solving the case than they were four years ago. But despite Markey's doubts, the case continued to unfold. The investigation involved midnight arrests, promises of new clues, and constant speculation about who the guilty party might be. It was a case that had it all. Money, sex, and murder. With all these new developments in the case, the public was eager for the next trial. Sure enough, it came. On November 3rd, 1926, Frances Hall and her brothers, William and Henry Stephen, saw the inside of the courtroom once again, along with their cousin, Henry Carpenter. A carpenter by trade, Henry lived near Frances Hall and faced trial. Accused of bribing the police and officials, in an attempt to sway the outcome of Francis's trial proceedings. Jane Gibson had even claimed to see Henry Carpenter among the individuals present at Lover's Lane that fateful night. The first day of the trial was marked by a frenzy of media activity, with journalists and photographers gathering from all over the world to cover the proceedings. The court was surrounded by a sea of cameras and microphones, with nearly 300 reporters from every corner of the world jostling for a glimpse of the action. The level of media coverage was unprecedented, even for the United States, which was no stranger to media frenzies. But this was different. The tension was palpable. As the grand jury took center stage, the townspeople wanted the hall and Stephen heads on a pike, and the weight of that fell on the jury. The room was silent, save for the sound of the judge's gavel as it struck the bench, signaling the start of what was to be a historic trial. It was obvious that Frances had spared no expense for her lawyers. According to reports in the New York Times, Frances Hall and her brothers had reportedly spent around a million dollars to assemble an army of the best legal minds in the country. A million dollars amounts to around $16.7 million today. And what an army it was. At the forefront of the defense was Timothy Pfeiffer, a renowned lawyer with a reputation for winning even the most difficult of cases. He was joined by Robert H. McCarter, another highly respected legal expert from the East Coast legal system, along with a host of other well-known and highly qualified lawyers. Together, the formidable team of legal experts worked tirelessly to build a solid defense for Frances Hall and her brothers, leaving no detail to chance. And while the outcome remained uncertain, one thing was clear. Frances Hall and her brothers were in good hands, and the prosecution 
had its work cut out for them. The prosecution, led by the formidable Alexander Simpson, claimed to have strong evidence against the defendants, including statements that implicated Miss Frances Hall in the murders of her husband and his lover. However, the defense was quick to point out the flaws in this evidence, arguing that the statements were unreliable and easily disputed. And dispute them, they did, calling to the stand key witnesses who denied any involvement with Francis Hall. Louise Geist, Peter Tumulty, and Francis's driver all testified under oath that they had not received any sums of money from Francis Hall, and that they had no knowledge of the whereabouts of Edward or his lover. The defense also pointed out the absurdity of the prosecution's allegations, asking why Edward Hall would share sensitive information with Louise, his wife's maid. As if to drive the point home, Louise herself took the stand, revealing that her husband had threatened her with lying on the stand about her involvement in the murder if she didn't go back to him. With each new piece of testimony, the defense built a stronger and more compelling case, leaving the prosecution struggling to keep up. Where Edward's business cards were concerned, they argued that over a thousand people had gotten their hands all over the evidence at the crime scene and William Stevenson's fingerprints on the card meant nothing. But soon, things began to pile up. Whether it was the public wanting to see Francis and her family brought down by any means, or it was honest testimony, is up for debate. A new witness had come forward, Ralph Gosling. Ralph claimed that he had seen Henry Stevens near the murder site on the day of the crime, and even had an encounter with Eleanor Mills. To add to the pile, Henry Dickman, a former state trooper, who had been involved in the inquiry, claimed he had received a bribe of $2,500 to keep Francis and her brothers out of the investigation entirely. And if that wasn't enough... Paul Hamborski, a friend of Edward Hall, planned to testify that Edward had told him about the threats made by Francis and her brothers and his plan to run away with Eleanor. With another 157 new witnesses ready to take the stand, it looked like this time the defense had its work cut out for them, but they fielded it all with surprising ease. Ralph Gosling who had claimed to be an ex-lover of Eleanor, was immediately discredited by the defense, justifying that Eleanor's former lover would have every reason to wish harm on Edward Hall's family and would therefore say anything to incriminate them. And Paul Hamborski, the friend of Edward Hall, who had promised to testify, was mysteriously nowhere to be found the day of the trial. It seemed like the case was slipping away from the prosecution. There was nobody left except Jane Gibson, who had always been the key. Except 
she had proven herself to be unreliable, and the defense painted her as such once again, even as she struggled out of her hospital bed, sick with cancer, to come and testify. Despite her health and the defense's opposition, Prosecutor Alexander fought hard to get Gibson on the stand. Attended by a doctor and two nurses, Miss Gibson was brought into the courtroom on a stretcher and positioned on an iron bed facing the jury box. But throughout her testimony, Jane spoke with a firmness and conviction that had oddly been missing all those years ago. Her testimony was detailed and precise, and she identified the Stephen siblings as the ones responsible for the murders. Her account of the events matched up perfectly with the evidence that had been presented, leaving no doubt about the guilt of the accused. Just as the jury was getting convinced, however, the defense motioned Jane was so sick she was delirious. In a shocking twist, they even turned Gibson's own mother against her. As Gibson spoke, Miss Salone Serenor, sitting in the front row of the gallery, wrung her hands and muttered, She's a liar. She's a liar. She's a liar. Throughout Gibson's testimony. It was a calculated move by the defense to disrupt Gibson's mental state, and it seemed to be working. In a dramatic moment in the trial, Gibson sat up in her bed and directly addressed Frances and her brothers, screaming, I have told the truth, so help me God, and you know I have told the truth. Despite her testimony, the defense continued to undermine the prosecution's evidence, making it difficult for Simpson to make his case to the jury. In the end, Simpson demanded a mistrial claiming that the jury had been compromised, which wasn't granted to him. With all the twists and turns thrown in, the jury took days to reach a verdict. Though the prosecution had fought hard to prove the guilt of Frances Hall and her brothers, the jury found them innocent of the murders due to the alibis supplied by Frances's maid, driver, and gardener. Alexander Simpson, it seems, left the town even before the court verdict, because according to him, it was a fate that no one could change. And right there, the Edward Hall Eleanor Mills mystery was considered closed. While Frances Hall and her brother were exonerated, in the eyes of the law. The mystery of who killed Edward and Eleanor has persisted. In the years to come, many books and articles will be written on the case, each with its own theory on what really happened on that fateful night. One popular theory is that the murders were the result of anger from Francis's brother, Henry, who wouldn't have wanted Edward to run away with Eleanor and leave his sister. The couple's bodies were positioned in a strange way, leading some to speculate that the killer may have been trying to send a message. 
Others have suggested that the murders may have been part of a ritualistic punishment for the couple's perceived sins. And others have pointed the finger at James Mills, Eleanor's husband, who may have been motivated by jealousy and anger over his wife's affair with Edward. It's been reported that he sold Edward's love letters to a newspaper, which suggests that he may have had more than just a passing interest in the couple's affairs. But despite all the theories, the truth remains elusive. It's possible that we may never know for sure what happened on that dark night in 1922. But what we do know is that the crime has left a mark on the public consciousness, inspiring countless works of fiction and non-fiction over the years. Francis would move to Europe for two years to escape the harsh scrutiny of her town and only return upon the death of her brother. Francis Hall died on December 19, 1942, still considered the murderer of her husband, and James Mills passed away in 1965. It's unclear how he felt about the outcome of the case, but it's possible that he never got over the loss of his wife. Jane Gibson, whose dramatic testimony had played a key role in the trial, died in 1930, but not before receiving a note from Frances Hall, forgiving her for what she had said in court. As we bring our series to a close, we're still left with many unanswered questions. And like the people of Somerset, we will be waiting for a verdict that may never come. <laughs>